on this episode of The James Quandall Show. Dude, if there's one thing we don't have these days, it's existential, spiritual, mental, relational, and physiological peace. We just run and run and run. Think about it just like a warrior, dude. You can just put your shield and sword down, and you don't got to worry about somebody stabbing you. To celebrate the launch of my good friend Dr. John Deloney's new book, today's episode is a special release of our conversation on the very first episode of the show. In this episode, John and I discuss many of the concepts that were expanded upon in his sophomore book titled Own Your Past, Change Your Future, a not-so-complicated approach to relationships, mental health, and wellness, such as what does real friendship look like, the number one enemy of our time and how to defeat it, how it's important for us to stop solving for discomfort and start solving for connection instead. Finally, John explains that we aren't missing friendships in our modern era, but instead we're dying from not having them. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this special release of my conversation with Dr. John Deloney. Dr. John Deloney is a mental health expert with two PhDs in counselor education and supervision and higher education administration from Texas Tech University. Prior to joining Ramsey Solutions in 2020, John worked as a senior leader, professor, and researcher at multiple universities. He also spent two decades in crisis response, walking with people through severe trauma. Now, as a Ramsey personality, he teaches on relationships and emotional wellness. I, you know, I listened to an episode of, I think it was your show, but you had Dave Ramsey on and you were interviewing him and you guys were talking about friends. I know personally being an entrepreneur, sort of being isolated, not really interacting with very many people in the workplace, making friends is kind of complicated, especially when you're trying to grow a business. You, you're working with clients, you're working with vendors, you're working with contractors potentially, and those are the people you're spending the majority of your time with, but are they your friends? No, we've traded communication for connection. And I know that sounds like one of those hipstery, influency statements that you post on something and then just run off, right? We have become so busy with interactions. We assume that is friendship. We assume that's connection. And if you go back to Robert Sapolsky's work, the Stanford biologist, or he's a primatologist, I guess, we cannot function without being a member of a close-knit group of people who know our good stuff and know our bad stuff and who we know will be there at 2 a.m. for us and that will give us the biochemical gift of being there for other people. It's just called meaning. It's called purpose. It's called reason. Up until the last 50 years, all through history before that, the, the access we have to people all over the world, the constant stream of, hey, I need your help here, supply chain here, friend here, connection here, email here, that never existed. And so we're, we're asking our biology to do something that it's not designed to do. And our frontal lobes know we're meeting and talking to a lot of people that we actually like. They're fun to talk to. It is a different form of interaction. We're just dying on the vine. We're literally dying of loneliness. So do you need the physical touch or the physical location of, of, a, of a relationship? Like we're talking right now, eight hours apart location-wise. Can you replace that or do you need to be in person? I think the empirical data is, I think, A, that's really hard to do a, a proper control study, right? So I think you're going to get a bunch of people like me with, with a heavy bias. I do think that we're in a, what I call the HR era where there was some absolute disgusting sleazeballs 
and idiots and the quote unquote that guys in every office across America. And instead of firing those idiots, but instead of empowering people to have strong personal boundaries, we made blanket rules for everybody. I was at one university and during my HR onboarding, they recommended the air high five. Oh no. <laughs> it was, hey, let's practice. We're going to do the air high fives. That way we avoid any confusion. And hey, here's the thing. I get it. There are guys that grow up and are trashy, scumbag idiots, man. And at the same time, if you look at any and all primatology, those primates are touching each other all the time. That's how they communicate affection. And then you get into infants, bioregulation. We are co-regulated with other people, man. You have to have skin-to-skin contact with other people. And so you can even see it with infant care. They used to, you know, the baby was born, cleaned up, whisked away to like a popcorn heater, you know. And now the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, it is skin-to-skin contact. Put that baby back on the chest of their mother. Um, Tell that dad, it's going to be awkward. Take your shirt off and hold that baby to your skin. Um, And so, yeah, I do. I think we're in this weird place where you and I have become friends. I consider you somebody I trust. I wouldn't trade the time you came down to Nashville. We could actually be humans together. I wouldn't trade that for internet talk, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. My bias is the cursory look at the science tells me you got to be close with people. You got to have skin to skin contact when at all possible. Um, and there's a researcher named Dr. Love out of San Antonio. She talks about relational healing and she says, I can usually heal. I know how cheesy Dr. Love is her name. And she's a, she's a, I want to know is, was that her, uh, is that her real name? I I don't know. Her name is Dr. Patricia Love, Pat Love. She's brilliant. I've heard her speak, but I don't, I don't know. Um, it's a really fortunate name. I'd love (laughs) to know the chicken or egg on that one, but, um, she says, I can, I can generally cure relational anxiety in my clients in very few sessions. And she just recommends skin on skin contact. She calls it SOS four times a day, right? When you wake up, right before you go to work, Mm. right when you get home from work and right before you go to bed. And she said, it can be sensual touch. It can be sexualized or it can just be as you open your eyes and your spouse opens their eyes, hold their hands and touch their feet or take shirt off and have, um, somebody lay on the person's chest, just have skin to skin contact for 10 to 30 seconds and your bio rhythms just connect and right now that's weird. I'm not going to do that with Dave. I'm not going to, you know, with Dave Ramsey, we haven't seen the picture of that yet, but I I think, uh, (laughs) Hey, so I asked in the interview, it got super weird. So, I mean, you can't do that. Right. So what does intimate friendship, and I know that's a weird word now, but what does friendship look like? Yeah. What does friendship look like? Because there's it's a mess, man. There's hobbies, friendships. Like I play tennis, I play chess. I see these guys weekly, but I have no no real emotional connection with them. We we have a hobby we do together. Is that is that friendship or is that not friendship? I wouldn't classify it as such. I would I would classify you got to have a gang, you got to have people that you trust, and I think trust builds on. Uh, I think that's a great. It's fertile soil for the potential for friendships to develop. You develop competition, you develop one-upsmanship, that, and then you can start poking at each other, which develops that intimacy. They keep showing up at the same time. They say they're going to show up. You do too. Um, when you don't show up, they'll text you or they'll call you and say, hey, man, that wasn't cool. You, if we're going to meet at 10, we're going to meet at 10, right? And that starts the, that plants the seeds of accountability. Then there's going to be a moment when somebody can't make it and they're going to say, hey, my wife's real sick, man. I can't make it. And then you get to lean into that and say, I'm going to bring some food over. Right. And now we're in it right now. He has, or she has told you something that's going hard in their life. And you responded with leaning into that gap. I'm going to step up. I'll be there. 
we've got a group of folks here that I work with at Ramsey Solutions, a building of a thousand employees, right? But you got a group of people, especially those who are working closely on my content. It's all new. They haven't done health and wellness here, but they've started with sleep tracking. Oh, cool. And it's been fascinating to, to hear the conversations. Man, I, I'm not drinking as much anymore. Not that people are luscious, but I used to, you know, have a bourbon or two before night. I, it's showing up on my, <laughs> on my sleep tracking or, um, Hey, is it normal that after my wife and I, a night where we hook up the next day, like I have deeper sleep and it's like, no, that's connection. Like, but I had, we had an interesting thing. Um, four or five guys who've been friends for 10 years. They went on this, they do this camping trip every year and they stayed up really late, drank old cheap beer, you know, probably didn't sleep great out on an Island or woods, but their sleep was extraordinary. And that surprised me. They came, mm. all came back with their sleep trackers in the green and I wonder if that has to do with some sort of connection with friends, some sort of different physiological process. So all that to say is, you know, that's Matt Walker's world. That's the Posky's world. And I'm not smart enough to know the, the intimate biology stuff, but I am interested in tracking what does friendship actually do to your physiology? It reminds me of there's a couple in town that we frequently will have dinner with and we'll, we'll drink wine, we'll, we'll eat food, we'll just stay up a lot later than I normally am up and I wake up the next day feeling great and I fall asleep that night feeling great. And if I was to do that at home, eat bad food, potentially stay up (laughs) late, drink wine, I'm going to not go to sleep very well. I'm going to wake up feeling like crap. So there has to be an extra layer there. There was a study a few years ago. It was in some, it passed around some nutrition circles. Um, And so I'm, I'm I'm a mental health guy by trade, but I, I recognized years ago, the intimate connection between, you know, your nutrition and your ability to show up in relationships and those things impact your mental health, right? But basically it was the anxiety you feel or the, your body's chemical response to you being an outsider within your group at a party because you are quote unquote, the guy, I don't eat pizza. I've got to get my macros in. It said the physiological consequence of the anxiety your body feels by being an outcast, eat the pizza is what it said. Don't do it every night, but go to the party and have a glass of wine or two or three and have some pizza and hang out with your friends and tell jokes. And if it gives you a gasket over yourself and it, it, it talked about what you've experienced, which is community and connection. man. And so I have to believe the science points this way. You're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of years of history would tell us millions of years of history, man, we are connected to be, I mean, we're wired up to be connected, man. Yeah. So how do we create that? Like more frequently what do you think would is a good dose of creating these chance encounter dinners with neighbors for example i mean you can't do it on zoom so if i can get existential for a second one of the things i loved about mental health research was what i called being an upriverist meaning um, one of the things we were trained for in a counseling program was you deal with your client every day, right? They come to you with pain. They come to you next week with pain. They come to you next week with pain. You're unethical if you don't start asking questions. If you reach into the river to pull them out every day, at some point you got to ask questions. Why do they keep falling into the river up upstream? Or why does somebody keep shoving them into the river, right? Um, and that's when you get mental health practitioners looking at systems and how things work. So when I look at all of the political discourse, the fighting, the teams, the cancel, all that stuff, if I really get to the root of it, I think you'll land on a couple of different things. One is the pathological number one demon of our time, which I think is loneliness. And I also think there's a philosophical 
death we are dying, and that is we solving for discomfort. And it started mm. with the discomfort of starvation, the discomfort of disease, and man, those are great things to solve for. And over time, you see things turn into go from, oh, wow, that's incredible that you helped heal or cure. And those things became rights. And then those rights became entitlements. And now we're solving for any sort of discomfort. Hmm. And so a cornerstone of relationship discomfort. And you see that in nutrition space, right? James, like, what's the minimal effective dose? What is the least amount of things I can do so I can go do the next thing I want to do? There's, we've lost the art of just being, right? Or we're trying to solve for winter. Like, and we don't normally say, hey, when winter comes, summer's broken. That's not how that works, right? Winter is the natural consequence of summer and fall and winter. It's a, it's a part of the seasons. It's wired into us. And we have a million scientists trying to solve for death, right? Trying to solve for longevity. We have a million scientists trying to solve for if we could just end winter, right? Then we could have summer forever, right? Well, you just moved down, down here and you That's really right. don't have That's winter. Right. That's right. <laughs> And so, so philosophically speaking, we've tried to solve for discomfort. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? That means if any relationship makes us feel uncomfortable, if a professor at college, and that's been, I spent the last 15, 20 years in, in university settings. Um, if a professor says something that makes me uncomfortable, I'm going to go complain. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to get him canceled. If somebody does a podcast that I wholly disagree with. I'm going to try to get him canceled. I'm going to storm this. I'm going to burn that. I'm going to throw that. And that's the world we're in. Instead of having people around the table and being able to laugh and go, that's, you're my friend and I love you. And I know you're smart. You have a medical degree. And that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, right? And so I think at the end of the day, to have true deep connection, do deep friendships that all rest on a couple of things. Number one, can I tell you the bad stuff that has happened to me? Can I tell you the hard traumas I've endured? Can I tell you when I violated my own values, right? Hey man, I just need to be able to text you and let you know, man, somebody in my office has a crush on me. I've been married for five years. This is me hypothetically being not in reality. And they texted me and asked if I want to go grab dinner. And I, I went Ooh. like, I got to be able to call somebody and tell them, Hey, I have a set of values. I committed to somebody. Ah, man, I'm teetering on the brink here. Right. I did something stupid. And you got to be able to tell friends the good stuff that happens to you because we've solved for discomfort. We've now hedged our bets against anything positive. And so we hide positive things from our friends. How annoying is it to get a call from somebody? Hey, what's up, bro? What's going on? Hey, I just need to tell you, I just got this massive raise and my wife and I's relationship is incredible right now. And my kids just made the whatever team or whatever. Just want to let you know, you would hang up and go, what, what an idiot. Why did you call him? Like, that's the world we're in, James. You think that's a good thing to be able to call someone and share that? You have to. Uh, Tony Robbins, you know, he's, he says, uh, we lead with our butts first. We're addicted to problems. We like when you walk into a room, it's like, hey, man, how's your weekend? Well, it was hot or it was cold or it rained too much or we haven't gotten any rain. Or did you see who tweeted whatever? And we all think, oh, man, that guy's a genius. housing market. We got a bubble. It's about to like that guy's a genius. And if somebody we ask that question, hey, how's your weekend? And they say, you know, my air conditioning came on right when I switched it on. Everybody's healthy. We spent some time out in the garden. Um, man, I'm, I'm feeling really blessed. And they walk away. We go. Man, that, 
that person's an idiot, <laughs> an idiot right <laughs> and so a great example of this is you know i wrote that tiny little book about anxiety it was it was supposed to be like a business card right it was not supposed to be a it, book it's, it, it is it is kind of like a business card i'm looking at it right now for for the listener it's a small 80 page little book or something, 60 page, something like that. James, it lost its mind. It ends up on the bestseller list. We're all around the office going, what is happening? And now it's sold so many copies. We don't know what to do with it. Well, we know what to do with it. You just keep selling it, right? But it met a need in the market we didn't know was there. I've got one friend, his name is Todd. He is the most stable human in my life, right? He's that guy that everyone knows. He wears the same clothes. He's got the, his wife is awesome. He makes the same decisions. He tells the same. He's just a great, stable human. And guys like me need guys like him because I am all over the place. If you told me to line up all the people I know in my life and say, who's the least likely to get fired? It would be him. And one day he calls and says, dude, my, he, where he was an executive, my bank just got sold. I think that means my job is gone. And so I, my, my, my heart sunk. Like That's like finding out the sun's not coming up tomorrow. Um, and I said well, man, are y'all okay? And he goes, of course, man, financially, we're fine. I plan for this because he's a stable guy. And I was like, man, that really sucks. I'm heartbroken for you, man. He's like the great employee. He's already been picked up. He's making more money than me. He's fine. But it was just this existential moment that we shared. And I said, well, if it makes you feel any better, I just got a call that I made the bestseller list. And he goes, for your pamphlet? And I was like, yeah, I know, right? And he's like, well, that's ridiculous. You know, so he made fun of me like good friends do. And then he said, Hey, you've been working for this for a long, long time. I'm really proud of you. And that one phone call epitomizes what a 25-year friendship, a ride-or-die friend that he knows I'll be there in the middle of the night because I have been for him and vice versa. He's been there for me. We were able to tell each other the good stuff, tell each other the bad stuff. I mourned with him. He celebrated with me. And then we're able to go on. I'm like, hey, if you need something, holler at me uh, if I can help you know, with a reference, with a connection. And he said, I'm not buying your book. You're going to mail me one because you're my friend, but I'll read the <laughs> stupid thing, right? So that is connection, James. Can you tell them the good stuff? Can you tell them the bad stuff? And then will they still love you no matter what, right? So if you are that stable friend, how do you get nourished? A, a lot of the people around you, in, in many instances, they're going to be having more things happen and they're going to come to you with them because you're the stable friend. But how does, how does that person get nourished? How does that work? I think that question, even asking that question suggests a commodification or an ROI of human interaction. That question. And, and I, James, I get that question all the time. I ask myself that question all the time. Um, I think that is a question that should signal to us that we have problem with relationships. Mm -hmm. I don't ever ask with, my friends of 20 or 30 or 40 years, even I got friends that I spoke to yesterday. One of my, he's a 40 year friend. You only get a few opportunities to make 40 year friends in your life. Right. Cause you don't yeah. live that. We don't live that. You, long. You're um, like <laughs> we don't. Yeah. And, and, and he's got some family challenges and he knows a guy. Right. And if I have questions about the automotive industry, he's gonna be the guy I call. Right. Um, but he called and it never occurs to me. That question doesn't occur to me with that group of friends. It occurs to me with people that I feel are transactional or trying to figure out, hey, maybe Deloney's going to help me out someday. But, and so here's what I've done, James. I've completely stopped asking myself that question. Hmm. I know after I interact with somebody for the first time, like you, we met professionally. We met with, hey, you, I like your stuff and I live in this world. If I can ever serve and love you in a way, it'd be awesome and vice versa. If I, there are just conversations and relationships you walk away from, especially new ones. 
that you, like you said, you just sleep better. You walk away refreshed. And if you find yourself after one, two, five, seven interactions with people and you feel drained, you feel exhausted, you start censoring yourself, those probably aren't going to be your ride or die friends. And that's okay, man. It's okay to have interactions with people. We need those. Um, and it's okay to not continue to double down and overinvest what they call sunk costs and economics. It's, it's okay to not keep dumping money and time into stuff. Yeah, that makes um, sense. But it, there's just, I, I've experienced over time to stop asking that question and just start listening to my body. What's my body telling me? Not, not even if it feels good, if it's right. Because there's some conversations I have with my friends, like one of the running jokes with my friends that's not a joke is, hey man, if you ever cheat on your wife, you better hope she finds you before we do. Right. And so that group of guys will put me in the hospital and then they'll show up with like a, (laughs) they'll show up with a 12 pack of cheap beer and they'll sit in the hospital with me. Right. That's what, that's those, that's that group of guys. So they'll hold me accountable and they'll walk along with me in the storms and then they'll be there when we all go camping when the thing's over. Right. So it's both ends. So it's not always feel good when they're holding you accountable, um, but it's right. And how do you make those friends? So that's that's the question, though, is is I don't feel like I have very many friends like that. I, I don't really know how you do that. Quote that stuck in my head. and It was about marriage. It was a quote by Esther Perel. I don't know if it has any empirical evidence to it, but it really rang true in my soul. She said most adults will have four, three or four or four or five great, deep loves in their adulthood. And if they work really hard it will be with the same person. Hmm. And she was talking about marriage. And I loved that because I'm a completely different human. Thank God than when I was 19 and I met the woman who's now my wife and 24 when we got married as children, basically. And then 35 when I went crazy and 38 when I almost blew up our whole, like all I've been a different guy this whole way through and we've had to readjust and learn again. So that same principle applies to friendships my friendships that i met uh, todd we met in the dorm like Mm. back in a cot like we're different guys man we've had to have seasons where we don't talk that much like man he got a really fancy job and he couldn't hang out anymore and then i had a kid and i couldn't hang out anymore and we just so it's been over and over we've had to grow and adjust but it all comes back to one magic word and again this comes from Esther Perel: all relationships are risk there is no certainty so you've got to stop solving for discomfort and start solving for connection. What does that mean? Dude, you and I, we are highly intentional about how we move our bodies. We're highly intentional about our marriage. We're highly intentional about the food we put in our body. Mm-hmm. We have to be 10x more intentional about local human connection. Mm. What does that mean for me? That means once a week, I have to sacrifice hanging out with my kids, hanging out with my wife for a time with a group of guy friends that is going to be silly and loud and annoying and obnoxious and whatever. Yeah. That means I got to risk. That means I got to get frustrated. I got to, I got to go do this thing. So my rule for me, James, is if somebody invites me over to the fights on Saturday night, my first thought is, dude, I'm just going to go to bed at eight tonight or go to bed at nine. My rule is I have to go. I have to go because I know it's going to be good. Just like when I wake up at 5 a.m. or 4.45 and I think I got to go work out. I'm not going to do it today. Now you got to go work out, right? It's the same thing. And I never regret it. If you say no to that workout, tomorrow is even harder to say yes. That's right. That's right. And dude, I've never gone to watch the fights with a room full of morons. We're all yelling, acting stupid. I've never once regretted that. 
I've fallen asleep in the middle of the living room floor of somebody's halfway through the fights and they wake me up for the main event. I've, that's happened. I've tried to teach a room full of people what jujitsu is like because I did that for years. Like all of that, but you just keep going and you just keep going and you just keep showing up. And then all of a sudden, one of those guys calls you in the middle of the night and says, hey, I got to take my wife to the ER. Can you come sleep on my couch because my kids are still asleep? And then boom, now you've got shared experiences. Now you've got the moment somebody to see if somebody shows up and they do. And now you're starting to, your brain starts to respond with, I can count on that guy, right? Yeah. What about coworkers? Like you're spending a ton of time with people in the office. Can those folks become friends or do you need them to be sort of separated from your work? You know, that's a, I think that's a raging debate right now. I think we are asking our villages and our faith communities and our small little tribes used to give us our sense of decorum. What should we wear? What words are okay, not okay? What is our unified morality look like? What's our values is a better word. And then, man, we've, we all got connected overnight with the internet. And it's like, man, that's not how my religion works. That's not how my community works. I'm from this country. You're from that country. And now we're just slowly or <laughs> with great speed, actually dismantling all those institutions but we don't we have we can't dismantle that innate need to be wired into a central purpose right to a central hub of meaning and so man we've seen over the last 25 years we've tried to make that happen in the workplace where the workplace is now our central identity and sense of purpose i think that's dangerous i really do um i've had a unique experience where a lot of my workplaces have been faith or nonprofit based mission centric, right? I've worked at faith-based universities. I've worked at a giant public university. Um, they all are nonprofits, which are mission centric. And man, when those relationships are good, they're incredible. You worship with those people, you go to the movies with those people, you uh, are exchanging ideas with them all day. Where I've seen it get nasty and messy is if you get cross at work, if suddenly you got to let somebody go because of budgets, or they may be a killer friend and a terrible at spreadsheets and budgets, then you got to fire somebody. Well, then, man, you can't go to church and you can't go to the movies and you can't go to the grocery store because you all live in the same small community. So I have developed, this is just my personal, um, I've developed a sense of separation, if you will, between <laughs> and not church and state, but work and work and community. I also recognize the closer I am to my workmates, because I'm I work in a mission centric thing now. I want people to be whole and well, man. Um, I've got to lean into that discomfort. So I have to continue to draw myself back to, hey, this is a risk. It's a risk. It's a risk. So it goes back to that old Carl Rogers. I gotta have congruence. The more I can be myself at work and at home and with my wife and with my kids and out in the community, the more I can be the same guy, the more my body's not in fight or flight, trying to toggle back and forth between communities. So it's both and man, but I think having close connected friends outside of your workplace is a really, really healthy thing. It's good to talk about other stuff, man. I learned from economists. I learned from my banker friend. I learned from my friend who runs an HVAC company about mental health, right? And they learn about taking care of their employees from me and how to take care of their wives. So I, I just think you learn from having a diverse set of friends and groups and experiences and expertises. Yeah, that makes sense. The culture of your workplace, for example, when I came up there and just walked around and talked to people working there and looked around the building, the energy in there was fantastic. It felt like everyone was friends, yeah. but it, it just felt like everyone got along really well. 
this culture is like none of the other I've ever been a part of. It gets accused of being a cult all the time. Um, <laughs> which, I mean, if you demand people be of shared vision, which is we're going to help people and we're going to help them in this way, then yeah, I mean, you can get cultish pretty quick, but more it's a way we treat people. And so there's a few things that will get you walked out of here in this community, this workplace. And that is gossip, talking bad about people. It's just simply not tolerated. I come from a culture in higher ed where the whole thing is based on gossip. The whole thing's based on peer review. That idea, you're stupid and here's why. That's the whole enterprise. Well, I hate to break it to you, John. I was in that uh, sound booth and, you know, uh, your friends <laughs> yeah. there, James and Kelly, I'm sure they're listening right now, I hope. We, we were having some fun. Uh, I don't know if I'd call it gossip, though. I think we were... We so there's were a- they would say oh, it to man, your we, face. So that's not gossip, right? <laughs> that's right. There's a lot of trash talking, um, but not a lot of, I need to build myself up at the expense of other people, or mm-hmm. more importantly, I am going to use my limited view of a problem that senior leaders are trying to solve that more informed people are going to solve. And I'm going to talk bad about their character, about their work performance or ability, because it's going to make me feel better. It's going to make me look better. Right. And that is just simply not tolerated. I've gotten called in. They told me, hey, you're a fancy pants personality. You talked about so and so in this way in this meeting. I said somebody's idea was stupid. It was dumb. And they said, hey, we don't do that here. You got a problem with their idea. You go talk to them about their idea and y'all work it out. And mm. if you think their idea is hurting people, you can talk up. Go tell your supervisor, I got a problem with this and this is why. Um, but so I think. I think what you get there is a sense there is no poison allowed to circulate in the water here. And so it does make people, you can walk with both feet on the ground because you know people aren't talking bad about you. You can actually fully show up. So I think that's what you feel. And the Ramsey Solutions dumps millions of dollars into shared bingo nights and battle the bands and cigar nights. I mean, there's constant, constant community development opportunities here so that you trust people around a table if you can eat with people, you can work with people. And if you can eat and work with people, you can go to battle together. And so that's the that's the shared vision. It's it's not best for everybody's bottom line. It'd be cool to dump that money into everybody's paycheck, but there's something bigger than that, right? Yeah. How what can we learn there for friendships though, as far as the not gossiping rule? So if you're hanging out with your buddies and you're all talking about somebody else that's not in the room, does it make you feel like they're talking about you when you're not in the room? I mean, how do you it's a hundred percent chance. And I even come to expect it. And even to where it's funny, um, I expect people, like if I'm sitting with somebody and we start talking about so-and-so, that guy's an idiot. He never even calls me back. A hundred percent chance when I'm not there, they're doing the same thing for me. And so part of it is I didn't bother. Like, I know I'm a weird person. I know I've got weird habits and weird stuff and I have weird diets and I, I know. Yeah, did, you, did you hang upside down this morning? I, I just am curious on your teeter. <laughs> I didn't do that. My, my family's been gone for 10 days. And so this morning I just hung out, right? And yeah, you hung out. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I see what you did there. Well, well, well done, James. Um, but so there's a difference between my friends saying, that guy's an idiot. He's probably mm-hmm. off eating some weird, stupid diet and walking in the woods barefoot like a moron. Like, I expect that, but they do that when I'm around, right? Yes. Um, I expect them, if they have a problem with my character, that they're going to give me a call. And they do, Right. So yeah, you can show up or not show up, but your relationships aren't a competition. They're not a way where you're proving yourself in and amongst each other. 
They're a place where you can just drop your shoulders and show up and be, right? And whew, dude, if there's one thing we don't have these days, it's just existential, spiritual, mental, relational, and physiological peace. Mm. We just run and run and run. And your friendship should be a place where you can come drop all of your armor and shield. Think about it just like a warrior, dude. You can just put your shield and sword down and you don't got to worry about somebody stabbing you, man. You can just laugh and be goofy. You can say something. Uh, hey, here's what was awesome. I worked at, I was a dean of students at a law school. You talk about a group of extraordinary, brilliant advocate professors. And I'm talking, I've got buddies that would make Bernie Sanders be like, whoa, that's a little too far to the left, brother. And I've got friends who are law professors that would make Trump blush and be like, that's a little bit too far right, everybody. Let's, let's come back to the middle some. And man, our kids would play together. We would have the most loud, fun, not fun debates. And I would say something the wrong way. I would say something that was a third rail that if I posted on the internet would get me canceled. And they knew my heart. Uh -huh. And they'd go, Deloney, never say, they would laugh and they go, never say that again. Say it like this, right? Um, here's a more hospitable way to say that. And on, on every imaginable spectrum. But how did they know your heart though? Because of the time. Because they knew my kids. We shared meals together. We shared laughs together. They, show, they saw me. I would show up when they were in the hospital, when they were crying. They showed up when I was struggling, right? They were there when my kid was born. So that you have these shared experiences, right? Mm -hmm. And you can only do that by showing up again and showing up again and showing up again. And kind of like we talked about, you could make a macro argument and a nutritional argument for no matter what friend comes over, you stick to your keto diet and you stick to your whatever, whatever. But there's something greater going on. There's some, a reason your body settles into another layer of peace, which translates to deeper REM sleep, which yada, yada, yada. There's something to be said for what's the limited amount of dose of friend I can have so I can get on to my next entrepreneurial thing and my next, what a terrible way to live. Man. Yeah. Like what a terrible way to live. There's something about just showing up and showing up. And then when I say, Hey, that group of people is a this and the whole room gets quiet and they look at me and go, yeah, never say that again, Deloney, you idiot. It's like this. They know my heart is hospitable and kind and that I love all people. And that I just said something the wrong way. I'm not a caricature and vice versa. Right. Yeah. That's uh. so do you, do you, this is, this is just a, an opinion. Do you think we're missing those types of friendships as a whole in our country right now? Like, I mean, I know I am. We're not missing them. We are dying from them. Mm. Like missing sounds like, um, you know, there's a concert in town and I missed it. Like, Oh, that sucks. We are dying. If you go back and look at, you know, was it uh, JAMA, the American Medical Association, before COVID in November 2019, they put out a special report, man, diseases of despair. The average lifespan of a U.S. citizen went down for the third year yeah. in a row. Mm. There is no country on earth that spends more money on research, on technology, on medical infrastructure than the United States, period. And we are dying. They called it diseases of despair which are organ disease failures, suicides. We think like, oh, murderers are taking over and people are burning our city. No, dude, we are dying from loneliness, literally dying from it. When our, think about this. 
Here's the thought experiment. 10,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, you open your eyes after a night's sleep and you're in the savannah. You're in Nebraska, right? And it's just fields, right? It's just Nebraska. And your tribe has left you. They're gone. Every stress hormone you have dumps into your bloodstream. That is fight or flight at its highest. Why? Because your brain knows without your tribe, you're going to die. You're going to starve to death. You're going to get eaten by something. You're going to get murdered by a neighboring tribe. You have to have your people. And so every a lick of cortisol and adrenaline, your body floods with those hormones. And dude, now we do that intentionally. That's how we live. It's mm -hmm. wired into our, you know, into our, the very ethos of our country. You go West by yourself and solve your problems, pull yourself up by your own, whatever, and solve your problem alone. And dude, it's killing us, man. It's yeah. just killing us. I'd love to keep talking about this, but we're, we're running, we're running on the time here, but I do have a question. Are we yeah. putting too much onto our spouse then in, in that scenario? I, I think, yes, I, I think out of desperation. Um, I, so I work behind closed doors with um, fancy pants, as I call them, you know, doctors, lawyers, and famous people, people who have quote unquote made it, right? Elite military, those folks. Um, they're so relationally starved that when they find somebody who will stand in front of their friends and their family and God and say, or whatever deity they cheat, you know, whatever, and say, I'll, I'll be with you ride or die for the rest of your life right? Somebody will commit to that level of relationship. Um, usually what happens, very, very common, they turn their spouse into a trash bin, to a dumpster. They're the only person they got. Mm. And so mm. they bring home every, um, first responders, um, they struggle with this. I had lunch yesterday with a group of wives, the first responders, and somebody who's working with first responders trying to help with um, like this, the mental health folks. First Spouses just take it on the chin, man they got nobody else to talk to and so what i've learned is my wife and i have to be very i've got to be very intentional especially when i used to work crisis responders with cops and the military, police officers in the middle of the night i could tell hey i got a really rough night last night i saw some stuff that i shouldn't see nobody should see i didn't go into all the blood and guts i didn't i couldn't that wasn't fair to her um when i work at a place i can tell her man today was a hard day there's just some hr stuff going on but the more I get into the details of then he said that, and then she said that I'm just choosing to take my wife off the firm ground that which she's standing and drag her out into the deep water with me and just shove her head, just bob her head underwater with me. Right. As a way of making myself feel better. And I use her as a flotation device, which means she just drowns. Right. Mm -hmm. I've got to be courageous and go talk to a counselor. I've got to be courageous and get a group of friends that I keep showing up to showing up with. Um, and I've got to tell a group of guys, hey, man, I make a, this much money. I've got this many followers on whatever. I've started this many businesses. And I'm really scared about the state of the economy. I'm really scared about um, my dad's got cancer. And I'm and just, I'm heartbroken about it, man. Like, you got to have a group of guys you can talk to about that. And those folks will hold your arms up in the desert when you're tired, man. Yeah. That's what community does, right? Yeah. And uh, to, to close on that, I did a survey of the folks that follow um, my website and, and read my articles and friendship was the second lowest bucket of all the buckets. And faith was there, financial was there, future was there, fun was there, family was there, and friendship 
and these are these are successful entrepreneurs, business owners, executives, and like you said, they're dying for friendship. And if you're like me, I'm dying for friendship as well. So there's 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 people out there who are looking for you yeah. to be their friend. And um, I feel like we could continue to talk on this for a long time because there's so much more to learn about how to make friends, pick friends, find friends, and how to just be a good friend, but not be a commodity. This, James. Let me tell you this. So this is a, it's a simple biochemical challenge. Um, and I, and we, we can wrap up on this. When your body goes into fight or flight, when it detects threat, you know this, it, it literally disconnects your frontal lobe, the thinking part of your brain. It mm -hmm. says, let's run, let's get out of here. And it trades facts. It trades clarity, certainty for close enough, Right. That looks like a trail. I don't got time to make sure it's the right one because there's a bear behind me. It's close enough. I'm going to run down that trail, right? It's, you know, if you're the old Gladwell's work, that's how a kid holding a cell phone in the wrong place in the wrong part of town at the wrong time of night gets shot because it looks close enough like a gun and I, it, it's close, right? When we are constantly in fight or flight, which if you don't have community, man, if you don't got friends around you, your brain is spun out. Your thinking part of your brain is offline. I don't care how smart you think you are, how good you are at absorbing data. I don't care how good your, um, your, your feeds on your internet are sending you whatever studies and whatever. All that stuff is fine, but you're not seeing it clearly because your brain is not in a state. It's not in a information receiving mode. It's in a we're about to die mode. And what happens is you start scrolling and scrolling and now we're in an ecosystem where the scrolls just tell you what you already want to know, right? It just tells, it just refeeds you the same info, except a little bit worse every time. And so, so much of us look at what, at the world around us and think, this is it, man, we're in end times. And that's simply because we've been sprinting in the woods for so long. Mm. We've got nobody to go, hey, man, you just want to go get a drink? Hey, man, you just, let's just go eat. Let's go play putt-putt. Putt-putt sounds ridiculous. Let's do it anyway, man. Like, <laughs> it's not for the putt. Let's go fishing. Let's go do something. Let's go shooting. Whatever weird stuff you need to do. Let's go have a shared experience together. Let's put the stupid phones down. And I'll tell you, you're dumb. <laughs> or that's a good idea. I haven't thought about that. Or, hey, tell me how your family's doing. Whatever that looks like, man. And then slowly our brains can go, okay, cool. We're not sprinting anymore. Now we can start to take on new data, which may look like, Ah, man, maybe we're in a housing bubble. We probably should circle the wagons a little bit financially. Or maybe we're not in a housing bubble. Whatever that looks like, you can start to see and interpret signals clearly. You can start to see the signals through that noise, man. Yeah. John, Dr. John, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Where can the listener learn more about you? Uh, at the in, On the internet, some, at John Deloney, on the electronic stuff. Um, you can, my podcast, we spent millions of dollars to come up with titles yeah, and, um, I'd say your title was pretty good, the Doctor John Deloney Show. Yeah, really, yeah, we worked hard. That was original. Um, yeah, we, there's about 800 titles, and we just landed on that one. Um, lots of lots of marketing efforts went into that. Doctor John Deloney Show, anywhere you get podcasts, and then I co-host Dave Ramsey's show with him um, a couple times a week too. So you can, it's it's all over the place. YouTube show, all that. Yeah, and your book, pick up the book, uh, Redefining Anxiety. We didn't spend a lot of time talking on it, but. It, it, it was shocking about learning how to grieve. I didn't 
I didn't know how to grieve before I read this book, seriously. And awesome. um, that, that's uh, definitely recommend that for everyone. And, and Dr. John, I'm so grateful you came on the show and uh, thanks for being a good friend out there and an example of how to be a friend. Thanks, Brother James. Appreciate you. And thanks for putting positive, good stuff out into the world. Thank you.